We're having worship at the top. We're having worship at the top of that next week. You want to join us next weekend? No, probably not, right? Probably not. We'll come back to that story in just a minute. Hello, everyone. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and I'm very glad you're with us today, particularly to all of you uh, who are gathering with us here. Uh, it's good to see you here in the West Auditorium. I'm very glad you're with us. To those in the East Auditorium, we're very glad you're here as well. I haven't had a chance to be over there yet, but I will be later on yet this morning. And. Uh, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 14 today, if you'll grab a Bible, Matthew chapter 14. What you saw on the screen there, I want to thank uh, Jeremy Show from our staff who grabbed snippets of video from uh, off the internet to help us uh, put that together. Because what you saw there are, um, it's never been done before. Three weekends ago, Saturday, June 3rd of this year, Alex Honnold, who I just learned today is a distant, distant, distant cousin to the Honnolds from our own congregation. How cool is that? He, um, he climbed that El Capitan 3,000 feet up, straight up. Now, it's taller than the world's tallest building. The world's tallest building is the Burj Khalifa in the United Arab Emirates. And he went up higher than that. And he did it in, catch this, four hours. Now, it has taken decades for people, people, it's only in recent decades that people didn't have to climb it at all. And like, for some of them, it takes them two weeks or more. 19 days was one, one guy, it took 19 days. You, you mean you're sleeping on the mountain, and can you imagine, okay, yeah, I'm going to sleep in this cot, and it's going to secure me, I, I don't know. But nonetheless, he did it in four hours. He practiced for two years, with ropes, obviously, and then finally did it um, three weeks ago without ropes. On the day before he pulled it off, um, he went down the mountain, he rappelled down again, and made sure that all the chalk marks that he'd made in the mountain were there so that the rain hadn't washed them off or anything like that, so he'd know they were giving him clues as to what was next. Now, some of the footage you saw gracefully came from National Geographic. They sent a climber up with him, with ropes, of course. And uh, his name is Jimmy Chin. I would assume he's a pretty accomplished climber as well. They've actually worked together for 10 years. 
And this is what Jimmy had to say about his friend, Alex Honnold. He said, what he has done has to be executed absolutely perfectly for four hours. He said, basically, it's like a um, Olympic gymnastics routine that's a perfect 10, but not just for a couple minutes, but for four hours. If you even make the slightest mistake, if your hips are one centimeter off on some of these moves, where you're weighting your feet in a hyper-specific manner on a dime-edge hold, you are dead. Do you think? Now, a centimeter is about that much, right? In other words, if you get your hips just that much wrong, it's no good. When Jimmy Chin was telling the, um, the uh, Denver Post about this, the, he, he leans in and he goes, a perfect 10 for four hours. Amazing, right? It becomes incre- increasingly difficult when you get to 2,300 feet up. Because then the only thing to hang on to is a little outcropping that they say is a little over an eighth of an inch long. And you have to hang on to it with your thumb. Catch this. You have to hang on to it with your thumb. That's the only thing that's there. And then you have to scissor kick up to the next toehold. You know, there's a proverb in climbing circles. It says there are bold climbers, like Alex Honnold. There are bold climbers. There are old climbers. There are very few bold old climbers. (laughs) You wonder why, right? Let me ask you this. Are you courageous? We'll come back to Alex's story yet today. Are you courageous? Maybe some here today would say, well, I'm courageous, but I'm not stupid. I mean, I'm not climbing that mountain. I'm not doing that. How, How do you... How do you manage courage and the things that are in front of you? We're going to look at a story today in Matthew chapter 14. Grab your Bible if you don't have one with you. There's one on the pew rack here in the west in the East Auditorium. There'll be some people moving around, and we'd be glad if you'd take that home as our gift to you if you need a Bible, okay? And uh, we're going to read Matthew chapter 14 to see and see the story of a fellow who is pretty courageous, I think, okay? Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 22. We're reading uh, in, right in the middle of Jesus' uh, ministry story, and we get this, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples. So when you would see the word immediately, there's something right before it, right? So we'll come back to the story right before the immediately in just a few minutes ago. But something's happened that ends in verse 21, and then immediately in verse 22, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Perhaps you might know, There's a, the crowd here is the 5,000 men plus women and children who've been fed with five loaves and two fish. And uh, we'll come to this story in a minute. So he dismisses the crowd, and after he dismissed them, he went up to a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land. We know from other passages in Scripture, they're out from the shore about three and a half miles, Okay. They're out there. They've left at dusk. It's now probably in the middle of the night, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, many, years, many hours later now, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. This guy's coming to him walking on water? When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus said to them, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. And one of the fellows, Peter, says, hey, if it, if it really is you, Jesus, tell me to come to you on the water and come. <laughs> Are you kidding? 
get out of the boat and walk across the water? Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Hey, look at me, I'm walking on water. But then he begins to see the wind and the waves, and here's the moment like, I shouldn't be out here. This is not what people, normal people don't do this type thing, okay? When he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand, caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? In other words, I want you to believe there's something you need to believe in. When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, and this really is the crux of the matter right here. The story is all about, we're going to look at courage, but in many ways the story is all about verse 33, that because of this event, the wind dying down, Peter walking on the water, Jesus walking on the water, they finally figured out, you are the Son of God. So what we're doing here, if you're a guest with us today, let me sort of catch you up with what's going on. As a congregation back in February, we started looking at the book of Matthew. Matthew is one of four, we call them gospels, or four biographies of Jesus in in the Bible, and four different writers take a look at Jesus' life and ministry, and they give us what happened. Some of them from were there at the scene. Luke was uh, a guy who went back after the fact, another writer, one of the writers. He goes back after the fact and does an investigation. But we have four of them. Matthew, we've been working our way through it very slowly. Uh, starting in February, we'll finish at the end of the summer. And today, we are um, looking at this business of courage and Peter stepping out of the boat. And what does it mean when we say Jesus is the Son of God? Does it take courage to step out of the boat? Did it take courage for Alex Arnold to uh, climb El Capitan three weeks ago? I was chatting with the staff about that this week as we were having lunch together, and uh, I said, hey, um, Jeremy's putting together some snippets of what this guy did a few weeks ago, and uh, we're going to show it in church this week. And one of the concerns that National Geographic had when they sent Jimmy Chim up the mountain with him was that by virtue of having a camera there, would that cause Alex Honnold to be more risky? In other words, if there wasn't a camera, would he be more cautious? But with the camera there, would he take chances that he wouldn't otherwise take because he's aware that someone's watching him? Somebody in, this, in the lunch table said, well, I'm, no matter whether there's a camera or not, I'm not doing it. <laughs> right? I said, well, it did take some courage, didn't it? Well, yeah, but I'm still not doing it. I said, but what about Peter getting out of the boat? To which another staff member said, well, yeah, but for Peter, the landing wasn't anywhere near the same. <laughs> yeah. How do you live with, with courage and adventure, but not deadly risk? Let's see if we can set the scene here and see what we, if we can figure that out. Here's what's, happening, here's what's going on here. Uh, last week, we looked at the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people, 5,000 men plus women and kids. And I've been telling you that beginning in chapter 10 of Matthew, there's a shift taking place that up until Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is doing all this ministry, healing people, preaching, teaching, and um, the people who are with him as disciples are just watching and kind of participating, but they're kind of just along for the ride. But in Matthew chapter 10, the disciples are commissioned that now Jesus says, you're to go out and do what I'm doing. And so they take a run at that, and, and they do have some success, but then they get to, 
Matthew 14, where they've gone out in a remote place. All these people have showed up, and it's late in the day. They don't have any food, and the disciples say to Jesus, hey, um, would you send everybody away? And he says, no, I don't want to send everybody away. I want you to feed them. And you notice it's after that, after they feed all these people, actually, they didn't feed him. Jesus did, right? It says immediately. So when we, when we read this, we kind of read it in snippets. But I think you need to see this one arc of a story that Matthew 10, you're to start doing what I do. And then in a very brief period of time, we get to the end of Matthew chapter 14, where Jesus walks on the water. So these men who are traveling with Jesus, they're kind of, they're kind of grow and learn and figure things out. And they have some great success, but then they get to the 5,000 men plus women and kids, and they just blow it. They, we can't do this. Send everybody away. And then they're immediately, it says, verse 22. Did you see that? The word is immediately. It's a shift in responsibility that's been taking place where Jesus has been saying to the disciples, it's no longer a one-man endeavor. Now you've got to step into what I've been doing. You're to do, you're, you're, you guys, we've got all these people, we, you should feed them, and yet they couldn't pull it off. And so he says, you guys go out on the boat. It's almost like, I've had enough of you. And so you get the sense that there may be a little chagrin, they're somewhat challenged, and he just says, go away. Leave me alone for a while. So they get out. They're about three and a half miles out from shore. And they're feeling bad about themselves, maybe. Like, we really messed this up. We'd been doing so well, but now it's just not right. And so they're out there in the middle of the night, and the wind starts to pick up. The waves are starting to come in, and they're rowing, 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 rowing. Peter, row the boat ashore. Oh, you know, there's that sort of stuff. Fear sets in, and Jesus shows up walking on the water. And in a moment of sheer courage, maybe after the sense of personal defeat, of not being able to feed the people, sheer courage. One of the disciples says, well, if that's Jesus on the water, I'm going to try it too. And he straddles the side of the boat, puts the other leg across, and he's sitting there on the, on the side of the boat, and off he goes. Now... I want to tell you, in my mind, that took tremendous courage. He expects to accomplish something that no one else, no other human being has ever done. He expects to walk on water. And by golly, he gets out there and, look at me. Look at me. I'm doing this. No one's ever done this. But then, fear creeps in because he's looking around. He's going, no one's ever done, no, no one's ever done this before. And he sees the wind, and suddenly he begins to sink. I can't be walking on water, can I? This isn't, this isn't normal. Jesus grabs him by the hand, pulls him in the boat, and the disciples are more than just astonished at everything they've, that they've seen. They actually had an epiphany. It's in verse 33. What does it say in verse 33? In verse 33, they watch what's going on, they worship him, and they say, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, I've got to tell you that um, I've been in pastoral ministry more than 30 years. I've never preached this passage or this story ever before. Here's why. I think that when I was a kid and I'd hear people, preachers unpacking this story, I always heard them complaining about Peter, and I couldn't quite get my arms around it. They'd, he, they'd say, he doubted. And I want to go, 
can I give the guy some props? Can I at least say, okay, he doubted, fair enough, but at least he got out of the boat. At least he recognized that if he's going to be with Jesus, you know, if you're going to walk with Jesus, then a walk on water is a possibility. At least he took a step into adventure. At least he believed. At least he pushed against the fear. And at least he and the other disciples, that they discovered this, that in the midst of fear, Jesus shows up. That's pretty cool. Okay, so there's some doubt along the way. I get that. But in the midst of struggles, in the midst of, man, I got more questions than I have answers. You know who shows up? Jesus. And Jesus says, I wish you didn't doubt so much. I wish you'd believe more. Now, I know Peter, if you know him from the rest of Scripture, he's a fairly brash man at times. Um, but everybody was in the boat. We don't know how many disciples were in the boat. We assume 12, maybe 12, maybe more, maybe less. But there's a bunch of men in the boat. They're all facing the same situation. They're all rowing against the wind. The waves, they've got the distance to the shore. They've got forces beyond their control, the events beyond their control. And yet in the middle of all of that, what did he decide to do? He said, I can't control this, but I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to step out of the boat. I like it. Now, I'm not suggesting it was an easy decision. In fact, it had to be a hard decision because he's the only one who stepped out. Because I don't want to imply that stepping away from fear is easy. That's inappropriate, and I think it's quite dismissive. Believing takes courage and lots of it. To believe that you can do what no one else has done or you can do something you've never done before, that's courage. Tremendous courage. And the Bible has some ways in which we can approach this. The Bible has some ways in which we could say, okay, this is what we should believe this. And this is how, as a matter of fact, what I want to do is I want to take the remainder of my time this morning and I want to give you two lists. So you might want to write these down right fast. The folk up in the video booth are going to leave you two lists. You're going to see them on the screens. They'll leave the screens. The uh, guys, if you'd leave the slides up just a, a little bit long so people can catch them and read, write them down. I want to give you two lists. First of all, a list of, if you're going to be, say, I'm going to be courageous in my belief, what does the Bible expect you to believe? All right? So I'm going to give you, if you will, a biblically informed list of what to believe. And then secondly, based on what you believe, according to Scripture, a second list uh, that's biblically informed of how to live an adventurous,ome step out of the boat type of life, okay? So let's start with the first list. What does Scripture call you to believe if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, Scripture says that the God of Scripture is the only one true God. It's an understanding that's repeated, repeated throughout all of the Bible. It actually starts with the first two of the Ten Commandments, where God says, I am God. And then he says, don't have any other gods, small g, beside me. You have to start there. If you're going to believe what Jesus is implying here, you've got to say, I'm going to believe that there's one true God. And based on that belief, yeah, it requires belief, to, it requires courage to believe that there's one God and only one God, this God who is the God of the Hebrew and, and Christian Bible. But along with that comes another belief then that Jesus is the only Son of God. And friends, the Bible doesn't give us any other alternative. In fact, if you look at the story of Jesus walking on water, Look again at verse 32 and verse 33 and see exactly what these men in the boat figured out. When they climbed in the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying what? Truly, you are the Son of God. 
If you're going to believe there's one true God, then you have to also then, according to Scripture, believe that Jesus is the one and only Son. Because that's the way it is. You may not like it, but that's what Scripture implies. That's what Scripture more than implies. That's what Scripture states. And then here's why this is important, a third belief, and that is that there's this meta story to humanity's history. Here's the meta story, this big story that God is leading and God is engaged in the life and in the story, if you will, the process of that story. Christians with courage believe that God is acting in human history. And and I know the popular culture ridicules us for that. But courage and belief states otherwise. See, it, it goes back to what we see in the book of Genesis. And I know there's great debate about the story of creation. We should have some discussion at some point in the future whether or not creation comes in six 24-hour days or does it come in six epics. That's not the point today. But the point of, our, uh, 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 the point of what Genesis is all getting all about, a part of where, where you land on all that, is that Christians believe God created the cosmos and God created humans. And frankly, science is coming behind the Bible and helping us understand this to this, uh, this point. Science says that there was a point when nothing existed, okay? And then it exploded like that, right? Do you know the Bible says that there was a time, ex nihilo is, a, is, a, is the, the language that we use in theology. It means there was nothing and then there was something. The book of Genesis says there was nothing out of nothing God created. I don't know if it was a big bang. It's, again, that's a different, different discussion. But out of nothing, something came. And science says that the universe, the cosmos, expanded at a very rapid rate. The Bible says that creation happened, all right? And what science has acknowledged is that as, as the cosmos expanded, it grew, 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 grew. But in recent epochs, the rate of that expansion has slowed down. So here's what this means. If it went from nothing, and then it begins to slow down, what does that slowing down indicate? That the more it slows down, the more it slows down, eventually there's an ending point. Does that make sense? Do you know the Bible says that too? In fact, it's not science proving the Bible, or you can put it either way. It's the Bible proving science, it's science proving the Bible that we had nothing, we have something, and it's all gonna end. In the center of that big meta story, Scripture tells us that God put humans. And in the center of human's life, in the story of humans, the Bible tells us that God acted. That because of sin, because of suffering, because of evil, Jesus, the only Son of God, came as a missionary God, if you will, to change the lives of individual humans. That's what we believe. Christians believe there's a true God. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ. There's a story to how Jesus came and why he came, because he came to save us. And if that's the case, here's what we also say, Bible says you have to believe, that each individual who hears Jesus' story has to make a choice. The Bible doesn't force Jesus down anyone's throat or force any human to accept this story. You choose to believe or disbelieve. But finally, there's also space within Scripture that says that this believing is a growing process that involves trust and questions. The choice to believe takes courage. Who are we kidding? Particularly in our day. Sometimes that choice, to follow through on that choice, is easier than at other times. 
Sometimes, you know, just the events of the day or the events of your life where you are right now, man, you just, it's easy to see that God's engaged and, and that it's easy to believe. It's a cakewalk. There are other times, though, who are we kidding? Maybe days, weeks, months, perhaps even years, where you, you seem to have more questions than you have answers, and, and you live your life backed up against a very large question mark. The question mark is taller than you are. Do you know that God can handle that? God can handle your questions. Why is that? Because sometimes belief is a walk outside the boat in the midst of very rough water. Isn't that what Peter faced? But if you can pull that off in doing that, in taking that walk, adventure comes along. Because following Jesus involves a life of adventure. We have to believe that. And if we believe that, what are some biblically informed steps to, to, to that adventure, if you will? I want to give you some beginning steps to say, I'm going to take on all the adventure that God brings my way. First one. Say yes or say no, don't waffle indefinitely. I, I'm telling you this from personal experience, personal life where I am with more regularly than you probably realize. Some of you are like me. Here's how it goes. We pray and we pray and we pray. We ask God for direction and then we, we fail to step into what seems to be coming our way. We, we, we sometimes lack the courage. And the, the, the end result is to say, man, God hasn't answered my prayer. Well, is it possible that perhaps the answer came along, but you and I end up being like the disciples left behind in the boat? I mean, you've got all these guys in the boat. They're all there. They all saw Jesus walking on the water. They all come to the point where you've got to be the son of God. They all saw Peter do the same. Hey, look at Peter walking on the water. There was a possibility for any one of them to join Peter and Jesus. But I wonder, why did none of them say, Peter, I'm coming after you? Why didn't anybody else put their, their foot over the side of that gunwale and then the second foot and sit, sit there on the edge and push off? Why didn't they do that? Did they waffle? Either stay in the boat or get out. If you get out, you can acknowledge there are moments of fear. I'm reminded of the guy who climbed El Capitan earlier in the month, Alex Honnold. He said this, to walk up to the base of the climb without rope and harness, it just feels a little outrageous. Well, it feels a little more than outrageous to me. But nonetheless, getting over that side of it was the hardest part. I'm going to decide to do this. With free soloing, obviously I know that I'm in danger, but feeling fearful I'm up there is not helping me in any way, he said. It's only hindering my performance, so I set aside and leave it be. That's a photo of him just after he finished the climb. You know, scientists have studied his brain. Do you think? <laughs> they want to know how he copes with fear. And they've discovered it actually is a little bit different than most people's. But what about you and me? Okay, we're not going to climb El Capitan probably. But I could be like Peter, couldn't I? How am I going to do that? I'm going to acknowledge there are moments of fear. That's what Peter did. I, I'm afraid, God. I'm about to sink. But in the midst of that, he kept hold of God. It's not that doubt doesn't show up. Peter made this amazingly courageous decision. He put his leg over the side of the boat, put the other, swung the other leg over, pushed off and started walking. Now, at one point, he looked around and got frightened. The scripture says that Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, came toward Jesus. But when he, 
He saw the wind. He was afraid. He was beginning to sink. Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him. That's me. That's you. You make a decision with great courage to step into the, into the next big thing. You pray and you get the answer. You put your foot over the edge. Your leg follows. And then you're out there walking on the water and you go, whoa, what am I doing out here? My family doesn't do this kind of thing. I don't have the education for this. This isn't what we... What? What happens? You hang on to God's work in your life. I would ask you this question in that regard. Has God ever fouled up in your life in the past? Isn't there a track record of his amazing leadership in your life? That you've learned that every time you reach out, he's there. Jesus reached out for Peter. Oh, he doubted, but he survived. So what do you do? You put doubt aside often. It's not a one-time deal. The personalities of Scripture, who are the, the people we like from Scripture, are real men and women who said, okay, I'm going to do this for God, and then in the midst of it, invariably all of them had some moment where they just go, this, this isn't me. But they had other times when they had this moments of courageous, it's this back and forth, great faith, great courage, and then sometimes, well, how's this going to work, God? King David, a thousand years before Jesus, okay? He's, he's in the midst of this situation where he's got all kinds of people coming against him, all the, you know, right before he became king. He, he, he says, I, I don't know if I'm going to pull this off, what God's calling me to do, but he makes this statement in Psalm 18. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. It's, it's based on hanging on to God, right? Putting doubt aside, every time it shows up, I'm going to say, I put it aside again. Peter didn't step out of the boat in his own strength. Jesus was there. You know, friend, your plan to advance against the army of detractors that are in your life, the task, the project that your boss has given you at work that feels like a wall that's 100 feet tall, the moments when you've come to realize, hey, I've got to do something about my education and do some things differently, or when you have to courageously speak into the chaos of a broken relationship, all of that can happen with God. You can choose adventure if God is there. That's because with God in control, with the Son of God controlling the forces of nature, the wind coming against you, and you're rowing with everything you've got, you know what happens? You learn to decipher what adventures belong to you and what adventures belong to someone else. Here's what you get. You discover the big picture that it's always, not always, let me say it again, you discover the big picture, it's not always just about your courage alone. See, there's a difference between courage and foolishness. It would be foolish, stupid, ridiculous for me to try and climb El Capitan. Can't do it. I don't have the same body type as Alex Honnold. I don't have the training schedule he has a significant boost over me and you climbing El Capitan, mostly because of the way in which his body is wired. Literally, the muscles that he has that are different than other people. It's just, 
He's a wiry, small man who can pull himself up like that. And all the courage in the world isn't going to get me up that mountain. I could stand there all day long, and you get me about three feet off the ground without a rope, and I'm saying I'm done. If I could get to three feet up, right? It's not in my DNA. But you know what? I can see the big picture of who I am, and I can see the big picture of who he is. Different gifts, different capabilities. Can, can I remind you how this played out in, in, the, in the hours immediately before Peter walked on the water? I mean, we love Peter for being courageous and great. I've been telling about that all day long. But can we go back and look at the story again, right before they got out there in the boat. Here's, here's the situation. Jesus is out in the remote area, bunch of people, close to 10,000 people show up, and he's, they listen to his teaching, they're, they're, they're spending a lot of time, they're healing, they're getting healed, dusk is coming along, the disciples say, hey, we, we can't manage these people anymore, Jesus, we, we don't have food, send them away, we, we're unprepared for all of this, and that's the, the approach the disciples took, we can't manage this, and perhaps that's the approach you've taken to the situation that's in front of you this week. You say, man, I, I, I can't manage that. They all took that approach, except we know from the Bible, except for one other disciple. He's Andrew. See, in these four biographies of Jesus, these four gospels that we have in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of them tell the story of the feeding of the 5,000 men. And John gives us one little snippet of information that the others don't. It's fascinating. John, when he recalls the story, he was there. He says this, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. The disciples said, we can't manage this. And he, Andrew says, hey, Jesus, now, I don't know how we're going to do this. But there's a little guy here, a little boy. He's got five small barley loaves, two small fish. I don't know how far it'll go, but could we give it a shot? I like Andrew. We saw him back when we first started the book of Matthew. He's been, he's been, in, this, he's been in the back story ever since then. In, 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 you know, backstage, if you will. We don't see him. But in, we, when we saw when Jesus first called his disciples, he called four men, Andrew, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John went on, went on to be the leaders of the group, yeah. But do you know who started the whole thing? It was Andrew who saw Jesus walking along the seashore and realized that's the Messiah. And it was Andrew who ran to Peter and to their friends, James and John. He said, I've seen the Messiah. He had big picture eyes. He could see where things were going. He ran off to tell his brother Peter. There's this itinerant preacher. I think he's the guy. And he isn't mentioned much in the Bible except in places where big picture eyes are needed. He's not downstage in the limelight. He's in the background. Yet in bringing Peter to Jesus, he had the eyes of wisdom. And in the story right before Peter becomes the hero and walks on the water, Andrew's the one who brings the little boy and can somehow or other see, okay, we got five loaves, two fish. Maybe we can do something. What does that say about the people who are in the background? See, the adventure with Jesus is not only for those who are in the spotlight, for those who can climb El Capitan with no ropes, right? I wonder what happened, say six, ten years after 
the little boy gave his fish. What would have happened? I just imagined this. What would happen if Andrew and that little boy crossed paths again and now the little boy is a young man, he mid-teens. And would he say something like this? Hey, bud, remember the day that Peter walked on water? It's a big deal. That's when we realized that Jesus really was the Son of God. That's really important. But can you remember... Can you remember how excited you and I when you courageously gave your five loaves and two fish? God used the little amount of stuff that you had and he changed the lives of more than 5,000 people. Hmm. You know, it takes courage to walk on the water, to be in the spotlight. But I wonder at times, does it take even more courage to see the big picture that each life, no matter how large or how small, each life gets to participate in the adventure of walking with Jesus and saying, I think I'm going to step out of the boat on this one. Let's pray. God, your word is helpful to us. It gives us ways in which we can... um, Discover what you want to do within our lives. (laughs) I like Peter, God. Stepping out of the boat and uh, saying he's going to try something that no one else has tried before. And I like the fact, Lord, that in the process it wasn't far to fall if it went foul. But I like even more the fact that you came walking toward him in the midst of fear. There are people here today, God, who need to step into um, some belief systems that are new to them. They need to acknowledge that there's a true God who sent his son Jesus, and there's a big story to that coming, and that it calls all of us to a decision, and that we are called to believe even in the midst of questions. Lord, there are some here today who need to make a decision that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that their lives should reflect that. Give them courage, God to think and act significantly different about that big meta story that you want to be engaged in their individual lives and that they can respond, God. I pray that people would respond to you today by saying, God, forgive me of my sin. The screw-ups and the foul-ups of the past. I'm going to leave them with you, God. I'm I'm going to become a follower of Jesus with all of the, well, Lord, all of the ways in which that has some moments of great courage and difficulty and great trust and doubts at the time. Sometimes, Lord, help them to step into that. And then, Lord, for those who are already walking with you and who are um, perhaps in a place here today where they would say, okay, I've been waffling for too long on this matter or that matter, and I've been thinking that I don't want... uh, Lord, their struggles... Give them great courage to step into that new endeavor, that new project, that new life approach, that new relationship, that new God. You know what it is. They know what it is. Lord, we each know in the places where you're calling us to, well, acknowledge that you're the Son of God and in doing so have have the courage to step out of the boat and uh, do something we've never done before or that we need to do. Lord, I don't put words into it too much other than We need your help, and we lean into that very heavily today. 
In the name of Christ, amen.